0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. How is my Moscow family doing this morning? Good. All right. Uh, So today we start a new sermon series. Uh, It's not the first time we've done this series called Taking Your Mountain. Um, We've done a seven mountain series before. It was right before I showed up before Marty hit the Palouse. Um, I remember showing up and being brand new here and walking into the staff kitchen and there was like 40 million taking your mountain coffee mugs all over the place. And I remember going, what in the world this happened here? So um, but uh, so that was a while ago. We wanted to come back to it. It was an impactful sermon for a lot years ago and we wanted to come back to it now. But the premise of the sermon is that If we want to impact culture, there are seven areas, seven spheres, seven seven mountains, that if you can impact these seven mountains, you really do, in, in the course of time, end up shaping culture. Now, when I say that, I want to qualify that immediately. When I'm talking about shaping culture, I am not talking about culture wars, okay? I'm not talking about, oh, the world is out to get us, and we're all persecuted. That is not what I'm talking about, okay? This whole... This whole thing, the evangelical church, particularly the white evangelical church is struggling with right now, um, somebody needs to keep pointing out that it's rubbish. Um, this idea that we're on the underside of some battle we're losing, like enough, enough. Here's, here's the thing that we always talk about here. Since the, since the foundations of the world and of humanity, God has been putting the world back together and God is looking for partners. Partners. That is what I talk about when I talk about impacting culture. Jesus is putting the world together everywhere. With all people groups all around the world, Jesus said, my father is always at work and he never stops working. God is putting the world back together and God's wanting to enlist our partnership. I don't understand why, but he does. He wants us involved in the redemptive work. So I'm not talking about some taking the world back for Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about joining Jesus. Joining Jesus in what he's already doing, okay? Does that make sense? I'm going to get two emails about that. That's cool. All right. Excellent. So uh, first mountain we want to talk about today is family. So before we even talk about family, let's take some time kind of defining family right off the bat. Okay? We're going to throw up some different groups of people up here on the slides um, because as soon as I say family, we're going to immediately assume nuclear family, which is cool. That's great. Assume that. Definitely a part of what we're talking about here today. But it needs to be wider and bigger than that as well, because as soon as you assume nuclear family, there's a whole bunch of us in the room that are going to go, oh, this sermon's not going to be for me today. Um, whether we're literal or figurative orphans or, or whether or not we've just, we don't have children for a whole host of reasons or any of those things, I don't want us to assume something that then makes us not catch the thing that God wants to teach us about this And so there are different people groups that I want to talk about. One of those is parents and children and children to parents. Obviously, when we talk about the family mountain, we need to talk about our marriages. Um, for, for For the stand that we take as a Christian subculture on the value of marriage, we need to do an awful lot of work putting it back together. Nobody gave me an amen for that, but that is something we need to work at. We need to work at that. If we're going to impact that mountain, because right now we have no voice. We have no right to say anything about that area or sphere. And that's not because divorce is so bad. and all, uh, It's because we need healthy, whole, shalom, order-to-disorder type marital relationships. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, siblings and extended family. Um, some of us are very, very close to our siblings. And my sister was seven years my elder, so uh, we never really had that close relationship. And that, some of us have siblings that were very close to, to us. Uh, uh, we have extended family, gran- grandparents or, or nieces or nephews. We, I remember people, blood is thicker than water. Like I've, I've run into people that have that. Uh, so that's family. And then, and then there's spiritual family. Uh, one of my one of my favorite ways is, uh, that I read in the scriptures is how Paul references Timothy as his spiritual son. In, in, the, in the Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, which isn't the scripture, so it doesn't have to be true. I'm just making an observation. Uh, in the Talmud, it says that the only relationship stronger than the relationship between a parent and a child is the relationship between a rabbi and his disciple. But there is a, for some of us, we come from such dysfunctional families abusive situations, the only healthy family we have is spiritual family. It comes in and God uses it to fill those really dysfunctional gaps where we haven't been told the truth, we've been told lies. And so spiritual family has to be a part of this conversation. And one of the mountains is going to be church later, but this, this isn't just about the mountain of church, this is about the mountain of family, spiritual family, uh, spiritual mentors and their disciples. Does that make sense? All right, great. Uh, Here's my premise. Here is here is my foundational assumption I'm working off of here this morning as I preach this sermon. Ephesians chapter two. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's repeat after me. This is a responsive reading. None of us really grew up in liturgical movements, but work with me here, okay? For we we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. to do good works, works, which God prepared prepared in in advance for us to do. My foundational assumption is that every single one of us as human beings is a masterpiece. Every single one of us has an identity. We were put here on purpose for a purpose. We were put here on purpose for a purpose. This is why we go back, last sermon series, the big story, started in Genesis 1. Because it's my belief that every human being has a God-given identity. They may not be living that identity out very well. They may not be on board. They may not have partnered with God. But something that is foundationally true to who they are is that they have a God-given identity. This does not mean that some people aren't destructive, This does not mean that some people aren't abusive, even though they have a God-given identity. This does not mean that you don't set up healthy boundaries and parameters. This doesn't mean that you don't call the cops. Am I making this clear? If he's hitting you, you leave. You don't go, well, he has a God-given identity. He does. You still leave. Clear? We good? Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, So... But, but there is a God-given identity for every human being. I don't care about their faith background, their ethnicity, their gender, their age. I don't care about their sexual orientation. I don't care about any... If they are a human being, they are carrying around a God-given... They are a masterpiece. There may need, may need to be a whole lot of things that go along with that, but they are a masterpiece. So here's my foundational teaching here Today. I want to talk about direction. I want to talk about direction. Now, here's not what I mean by that. I don't mean, like, think about parenting, right? I don't mean, like, taking our kids by the shoulder and, like, directing their steps. That's not at all what I mean. I'm talking about that identity that I was talking about just a moment ago. Like Dr. Visker said in the video right before the sermon, he said, eventually our children have to learn their own way. That's a hard thing to come to grips with and accept, but it's true. Like eventually they're going to have, and so one of the hardest things I'm learning even now as a parent is as my kids get older and older and older, releasing them more and more and more to find their own way. So when I talk about direction, I'm not talking about control. I'm talking about calling out of them identity and casting vision for how God wants to use that direction. My son is eight, just about ready to turn eight years old. I can already see in my son, he has these tendencies and this design from God. God has wired him to be a leader. I want to call that out of him, affirm that in him, because he's going to have plenty of opportunities where the world's going to, he's going to step out and he's going to fail and the world's going to try to chop him down. I have to call out of him, that is how God made you. You do need to grow in that. You do need to learn some lessons and you need to walk that path that God's laid in front of you. And so uh, a few weeks ago, I was picking up, we were picking up our children from the children's ministry, and I heard Rachel Lampa bend down and start talking to my son. My son's like, I want to be a leader in training, an L-I-T, as they're called. It's so lit. <laughs> I'm culturally, I'm culturally deep, yo. Um, they, They... He says, I want to be a leader in training, but he's not quite old enough. And so Rachel's saying, well, we don't quite have that spot for you, but I do see in you, you are going to make an amazing leader in training. And I want to put you over here and let you lead. Instead, my son was talking to me this morning. We had family in town, my wife's brother and and his kids and his wife. And and he's talking about his cousin. He's like, I'm so excited for Titus to be here this morning because when there's new people in class, one of the things that Chuck will have me do is he's assigned me the task of taking these new people and making sure that they have a friend and I get to show them around the children's ministry and show them all the rooms. What is the children's ministry doing for my kid? They are, calling, they are coming alongside of me as a parent and they are calling out of my son his God-given masterpiece identity. They are giving him direction. Now, what do we struggle with? We struggle with protection and correction. Now, there is a proper place, obviously, for protection and correction in parenting in any of those, in marriage. There's a proper place for those things, but those things get overextended, don't they? Per- first, uh, first service was with me. Are you guys with me? You guys know where I'm headed with this? I hope so. Okay. Protection. Protection, that, that's based on what? Protection comes from fear. And correction, that comes from control. Both of these two things can be overextended outside of their proper bounds and they can become abusive on one hand or just restrictive on the other. You can overprotect. You can over Correct. Now, all these things have their proper place. I love the metaphor from Elizabeth Gilbert when she talks about fear. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about fear and she says, fear is an essential part to your survival. It's not like we're supposed to get rid of fear. Fear is what keeps you from doing stupid things, right? But fear doesn't need to drive the car. And so she'll say, there are many points in our life where we need to thank fear. We need to say, fear, thank you for reminding me that this may not go like I want it to go. Thank you. Now you need to shut up and sit in the back seat because you don't get to drive. So there is a proper place for protection, there is a proper place for correction, but we overextend those things, and then it starts to get in the way of direction, which is the one thing that family does. Spiritual family, marriage family, parenting, siblings, family calls out identity, safeguards and protects identity calls out the truth rather than the falsehood. And protection and correction gets in the way of that. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back to those people groups that we had established there, and I want to walk through all of these, and I want to talk about biblical examples. Ooh, I forgot some passages, actually. Let's throw up Proverbs here. Let's take a look at these, because I actually want to read the text. (laughs) No, he laughed at that, but I actually do want to read the Bible this morning. Start children off in the way they should go. I like that translation from the NIV. Start children off in the way that they should go. And even when they are old, they will not depart from it. This is not a formula for success. We all know all the different ways that this is going to fall short. And it's not some guarantee, some prosperity gospel guarantee that if you do this correctly, your children will make all the right decisions in their life. It's a general affirmation. Start children off. Direction. Direction. Don't try to protect them. Don't cor- just start them off in the way that they should go because eventually, just like the Viscars pointed out, They'll have to find their own way. How about this from Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it might go well with you. I wish I would have learned this earlier in my life. We read this and we automatically think children and youth when they're at home under their parents. And yet, for me, this became even more important later in my life, after I left home. It took me to my late 20s before I finally saw my parents as human beings. I don't know if anybody understands what I'm talking about, but... Now, I knew my parents were human. Like, trust me, I knew that they made mistakes. They watched this, so hi, Mom and Dad. Um... Like, I knew that they were human in that regard, but what I had never considered until my late 20s was that they were like every other human being, that I, like me, like every other human being I had ever counseled in, in their particular age group. As a pastor, I had seen them and talked to them, and I realized one day my parents were people. They had, like, fears and insecurities. Like, they, they struggled with life and walking it out correctly. Like, i had always put them in, like, some other category, but to honor my parents later on in my life became something that all of a sudden had this revival. I wish I would have learned it earlier. I wish I would have learned it when I was 16. But I didn't. I learned it when I was like 28, where it finally started to click for me and how I could honor my father and my mother. My dad just retired two two weeks ago. It, and, and of course, they're, like, all trying to play it, and they watch this, this is going to be awkward, but they're trying to play it cool because they're all adults and they've got, they're supposed to have life all figured out, right? But there's, like, this awkward, there's this awkward stage at the end of a life. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody that's actually gone through it themselves? Nobody? Okay, excellent. No retirees in the room. Anybody that's watched their own parents go through this? Okay, a few of those, that's good. Yeah, there's this, like, new phase and they're trying to figure it out, and guess what that phase is full of: fear and insecurity, questions. And so what do I get to do? I get to call out of my dad as his son, identity. I get to give my dad direction, not in telling him what to do, that's not my role, but in telling my dad who he is, directly and indirectly. Are we preaching? Do we understand? Like, I get to honor my parents. It's not just children to parents. It's parents to children that give direction. Because now as my parents get older and older, I now get to call out of them things that I know as their children. I have been the recipient of, and now I get to give back. Anyway, enough. Uh, But then it goes on to say this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. (laughs) What is that? That's overcorrection. Don't exasperate your kids. And by the way, it's not just about kids. Don't exasperate your parents. Don't exasperate your wife. Don't exasperate your husband. Don't exasperate your disciples. Don't exasperate your sister. Don't exasperate your uncle. Don't exasperate each other. Don't exhaust each other with your protection and your correction and suffocate. Give people direction. Call out of them the stuff that God put in them. So now I want to go to these people groups that we had up there earlier. And uh, I want to walk through each one of these people groups that we had and just talk about some examples. Now, I wanted to give you all of the passages in your notes. There is no way we have the time. I'm down to eight and a half minutes. There's no way I'm going to walk through all the passages, but I want you to have them because I want to challenge you in your care groups or your families or your own quiet times. Walk through these passages. Learn from these situations that we're going to have, that we're going to walk through here on this screen. Just consider how this applies to you and what God is calling you to do as you take the family mountain. Now, the first passage actually is in your notes, and you can actually look at that one. The rest of them will just be in references there at the end. But I wanted to look at children, to, or parents to children. There's a story in 1 Samuel about a man by the name of Elkanah. Say Elkanah. And Elkanah has two wives. We'll talk about polygamy some other time. It's a good question. Some other sermon. Okay. He has two wives. His first wife's name is Penina. Say Penina. The second wife's name is Hannah. Now, Penina has children. We're told that Hannah struggles with infertility. So all of a sudden, for so many in this room, this story just got real. It just got very natural and real for a lot of us. We've been connected to that in so many different ways. We're told that when Elkanah, the husband, comes home and brings provisions to his family, we're told that he gives a double portion to Hannah just to try to affirm that she has value and worth and identity, even though she struggles with infertility, you're still valuable to me. Now, trust me, I'm sure there are things in that story that Elkanah's probably doing totally wrong as well. I'm sure we could, there's lots of stones to be thrown in that story. It's a different culture, it's patriarchal, it's ancient. But, but he's trying to call out of his wife, he's trying to do a couple things anyway, right. But she still cries out before the Lord. She wants the Lord to take away her shame. She says, if you'll just give me a son, if you'll just give me a son, I know I know the kind of son you would want to have, and I'll dedicate him to you. Now, what that means in their culture, in this Levitical culture, is if she dedicates her son to God, she's going to give her son, after he's weaned, she's going to give her son over to the temple priesthood, and they're going to raise him, and he's going to be raised in this priestly family to serve God at the tabernacle. Now, in our culture, we're like, how could she do this? She does this because she's more concerned about his direction than she is his protection and correction. It's a different culture. I get it. I'm not asking you to give your son to the church. Please, keep him. (laughs) But in their culture, and then we're told later on in chapter 2 that every year she goes up to the temple for the annual festival and she's made this homemade, handmade robe. To give to her son, this mother who knows deep in her bones. She's not perfect. She knows deep in her bones her son's direction. And every year she's going to call that out of him. Every year she's going to say, this is who God made you to be. And it's beautiful. In the same story, it's almost like the story is juxtaposing this other family, Eli, the priest, and his wicked sons. And I don't have enough pieces to know what kind of a dad Eli was in the story, but the pieces that I do have are somewhat telling because in the text I keep seeing Eli try to correct his sons, not direct his sons. He just keeps rebuking his wicked sons, and we're told that his wicked sons go, eh, whatever. Direction. 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 Yeah, there's a place for correction. Yes, there's a place for protection. But direction is what drives the conversation when you're taking the family mountain. Uh, what about children to parents? Uh, there's this fascinating story later in 1 Samuel about a guy by the name of Jonathan. You probably remember the story of David and, jo- and Jonathan. David and Jonathan. <laughs> David and Goliath, but David and... No, 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 sorry. David and Jonathan, best friends. Now, Jonathan's father... I have lots of uh, really close acquaintances and colleagues that work in the, the realm of social work or counseling or they have their master's in psychology, different things. I've had them say on more than a few occasions that when you read the story of Saul, it's pretty clear that Saul struggles with some form of serious mental illness. He has these depressive states and he has these manic states and there's all kinds of, we could argue about the nuances of what it is, but it's pretty clear that if you just put it in real, real life terms, Saul struggles with some form of mental illness. Jonathan's father, I don't know how Jonathan lives with this, but David comes to Jonathan and he says, Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, my dad doesn't want to, my dad doesn't want to kill you. Jonathan has this belief in the identity, the identity that somewhere is buried in his father. Jonathan is able to see beyond the facade of the mental illness, and he knows that his, in his dad there's something. And David's like, no, your dad wants to kill me. And so they set up this little test case to see if his dad really does want to kill. And so I just won't show up to dinner, I'm paraphrasing, and then we'll see how your dad reacts. So they, they go to the dinner, and, the, and Saul flips out. And in fact, at one point, Jonathan's trying to like, figure out, like, Dad, like, what? And, and Saul goes to kill his own son. He throws a spear at his head. Now, Jonathan's a grown man in their culture. I don't know what kind of appropriate boundaries. I do not want this story to be used as a justification. Again, what I said earlier, this story can't be used as a justification to just hang in there in abusive situations. I don't know the kind of parameters that Jonathan set up with his father. Here's what I do know. Jonathan will die with his father on Mount Gilboa at the end of the story. Jonathan will never justify the behavior of his father. He will never get in the way of the fact that he knows David is the next king. Not once will he ever, ever selfishly struggle with the fact that he doesn't get the throne, David does. He is on board with truth from beginning to end, and yet to the very end of the story, Jonathan's not giving up on his dad, and we don't have any evidence that his dad ever got it. I don't know if his dad ever got his God-given identity. I don't know how that, how that works in the heavenlies, but I do know that Jonathan didn't give up on his father from beginning of the story to the end of his story. Jonathan's going to honor his parents as best as he can. And I'm assuming still set up all the appropriate boundaries. Never affirm dysfunctional behavior. All that kind of stuff. How about spouses? I think of the story of Abraham and Sarah. Obviously, a Jewish tradition telling us that Abraham knew that Sarah was barren when he took her as a wife. And yet wanted to say, and yet, in a world where if you had the wealth of Abraham, you were expected to marry multiple wives, Abraham will not marry another wife until Sarah dies. Because his whole life has been given to affirming the dignity and the identity and giving Sarah direction as his spouse. I think about the Hannah story in Elkanah Canaan, the double portion, calling out of his wife in the midst of her struggles her true identity, giving her value and worth as his wife, knowing that she's loved even though she struggles with this stuff. I think about uh, Mary and Joseph. I think about uh, Mary obviously running off in the, in the story of Christmas and the virgin birth and coming and coming back from Elizabeth and, and nobody's going to believe the virgin birth story. And so Joseph, we're told, he's just going to break off the marriage. There's a marital covenant, betrothal covenant. He's going to divorce her quietly, it says, because he's a righteous man. He's not going to publicly accuse her. He's going to try to let her maintain whatever dignity that she can maintain. And, and the angel's going to come to Jonathan. The angel's going to fill in the gaps of the stories. Jonathan, listen to me. I'm all over the map this morning. Joseph. And the angel's going to come to Joseph. And Joseph's going to go back to Mary and say, we're in this. We're in it. You and me, we're in it. And we've looked at every single Christmas. It's not verse by verse in the Bible, but the cultural context of the Christmas narrative like the whole world would have been telling them falsehood and lies about who they were and how they screwed up. And, and Joseph and Mary were in this together. I don't care if the whole world is against us, we're in it together. Our marriages need to look, how many of our marriages are correction based? How many of us How many of us I, I, are having all these conversations about who we wish our spouse was. This is who they need to be, which, by the way, raises a whole other issue. It's very important in all these conversations that we become very aware of who all these people are made by God to be, not who we want them to be. This can't be about who we want them, the kind of husband, the kind of wife that we feel like they should be. This has to be about the kind of wife that they are because that's how God made them. Our marriages have to be about direction, not about correction. All the counseling that, that, and it's good, it's good. Please come to us for counseling. Please, please, please. I'm not trying to badmouth that at all. But all the conversations we have about angry spouses that just want to correct the other. I just want to make them into the person that I, I want to make them in the image I want them to be made in. Rather than the image that our marriages need to be built on calling out people's true identity, not trying to correct the identity that we think is wrong. My, as I've been married more and more, I've gotten more and more vulnerable. I wish it didn't take me 15 years to figure that out, but more and more vulnerable as I've been married with my fears and my insecurities. What it's enabled my wife to do is be able to speak to me with the, with the proper corrective voice. As I, as I wrestle with fear and, and whatever I'm wrestling with, and she goes, no, that's not, that's not true about you. That's not who God made you to be. That's not what our family does. This is what we do. Correction in its proper place gives me direction as a husband. Whoo! Preach it. All right. I'm getting all worked up myself. Hallelujah. Um, Siblings and extended family. I think of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Obviously, go to Genesis 33 if you ever want to look at this story. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau has a long laundry list of reasons to want to kill his brother. And he does at the beginning. But somewhere along the way, Esau must work that out in his life. He works out this process of forgiveness. Jacob comes back, and Jacob is all wound up about protection. Esau, you would expect, is going to be all wound up about correction. Jacob comes back, and he sets up this whole thing. He sends all this wealth And all these gifts ahead to Esau, he sends him servants and goods, and he sends him his family. Finally, he shows up, and Esau's like, what is all this? And Jacob's like, oh, they're all gifts for you, my Lord. And Esau says, I don't need any of this. And Esau speaks, he gives direction to Jacob. You're my brother. You're my brother. You're the one with the birthright. You're the one with the promise. We're going to be okay. Now, Jacob doesn't get it. The story ends. He runs off. It's going to take him another decade before he ever even begins to get it. But Esau, what is Esau doing? Esau's being that brother that he needs to be, speaking truth into Jacob's life, calling out his identity whether Jacob gets it or not. And then and then spiritual family. I love the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy. It's almost like two whole letters devoted to this whole principle of calling out of Timothy his actual design. Paul's gonna to write to Timothy, rabbi disciple, who he put in Ephesus, by the way. This young kid he sends to the second largest city in the Roman Empire. <laughs> and it says, you can do this, Timothy. I know you think you're young. I know that you think you can't do this. I know the church is full of problems. You can do this. I know because I know the faith that your mother Lois and your grandmother Eunice put in you. And I know the gift that you have that we saw when I laid my hands on you fan that gift into flame. He's going to say in the other letter, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Do we do this with our disciples? Do we have disciples? But nevertheless, do we do this with our disciples and our spiritual family? Do we call out of them? You can do this. You can do this. This is what that children's ministry is doing for my son. This is who you're supposed to be, and you can do it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't be a leader. Zeke will find a place for you to lead, even if you're young. This is what we have to be about. Now, there's this idea that I believe I put in your notes out of the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to give this teaching where he says, "Unless, unless a kernel of grain, a kernel of wheat, falls into the ground and dies, it can't bring forth a harvest. It's the principle of resurrection. Unless a kernel of wheat dies, falls into the ground and dies, it can't bring forth that harvest. Now, Here's the thing. When we talk about family, we want the sure thing. We want to come away from this sermon and go, okay, Marty. So if I work on direction and I try to put correction and protection in its proper place, if I work on direction, this is all going to work, right? My marriage is going to be healed and my kids are all going to turn out great and all this stuff. No, no, that's not how this works. This is not a formula. This is not a prosperity gospel formula. This is not, if you do this, then here's the only guarantee, here's the only sure thing I can give you. It's that this won't work out. <laughs> Does it make you feel better? That's the only sure thing that I can tell you is that life is going to be full of failure and brokenness and bad decisions. And but, but here's the thing that we all know to be true. It is my worst mistakes, it's my bad chapters that God has used to shape me and bring new life to my bones throughout my journey. Why? Because I had people around me that called out and gave me direction. If I'm surrounded by lies and nobody calls out my true identity in Christ and I fail, all bets are off. Who knows what might happen? But if I have people telling me who God made me to be and that I'm here on purpose for a purpose, I rise from those bad chapters. there's a resurrection that takes place. So we don't do this because it works. We do this because it's the right thing that leads to redemption and resurrection. If we will put correction and protection in their proper place, and if we will work on direction, 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 it will lead us to resurrection. You see what I did there? (laughs) This is, this, this. Here's the one thing I know. It's not gonna work. But that's why this is so important, because it's not going to work anyway. That's just life. This is what enables us to get to the last chapter, having realized what God created us to be. New life takes place. So we need to move towards the Lord's table today. If our servers want to go back to do that, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, we have an open table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, um, join us, your, your family. Uh, apropos word this morning, your family. Um, just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. Here are, here are our implications. Every single human being is a masterpiece created by God for a purpose. Every single human being is a masterpiece created by God for a purpose. Some of you may need to write a name at the bottom of your notes. And if it's the person sitting next to you, maybe don't write it until later. But some of you need to write a name at the bottom of your notes. And it needs to be a name that you pray on every morning this week. And you, rem- you remind yourself and you ask God to show me how they are your masterpiece show me god their design maybe it's a child maybe it's a parent maybe it's a spouse maybe it's a disciple or a pastor it won't be me of course just kidding nobody laughed at that but uh, but put a name at the bottom of that paper and say i'm going to pray about the masterpieceness of this person this week every Single human being is a masterpiece. Your spouse. And, may, and maybe, maybe it is too late. The divorce has gone through years ago. Maybe your children are grown and gone and you did not navigate this well. Somebody after Thursday night service came up to me and they went, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago. I think my children would be different. How many of us would that be the case with? Here's the thing resurrection can take place at any day any moment. And that's, they, they, I didn't even have to tell them that. They reminded me of that. I wish we would have known this 30 years ago, but the good news is is I can go and start today. You better believe it. And resurrection and new life can happen anywhere at any point along the journey. Every single human being. All right, next. Family is one of the most significant places where we find our identity. Family is where we learn truths or falsehoods, either way that we internalize and then project onto everybody else. This is why it's so important that you navigate this for yourself if you don't navigate this for yourself, if you haven't worked out the fact that you're a masterpiece and you were put here on purpose for a purpose, all you're going to do is project that own dysfunction and vomit that onto everybody else around you. And we know this because of how it's been done to us. Family is so important. This is why, for some of us, the church is so important. Listen to me, Real Life on the Palouse. Are we the kind of church that focuses on direction, Or do we focus on correction? Do we focus on protection? Because this is where we have... So many people did not get this in their nuclear, biological, adopted families. And so the spiritual family has to be the place that speaks new truth into places of falsehood. Next application. To be a part of a family is to safeguard each other's true identity. To call out our true potential to be everything we were made to be. To be a part. This is what family does. Spiritual, adopted, biological, nuclear. This is what family does. Family safeguards each other's identity. This is what your marriage should be about. Your marriage should be about tenaciously protecting that identity. Safeguarding that identity. So that that person has direction in their life. That is what family does. Next. Next implication. We will take the family mountain when we fight for others' wholeness, not our own preservation. We will take the family mountain when we fight. This is why this can't be about culture wars, because culture wars is about our preservation. Culture wars is about fighting for us. I can't, we have to join Jesus in fighting for everybody else. The the father and the prodigal son story, he tells the elder brother, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. Enough with the culture wars thing. We have always been with God and everything we have is, everything he has is ours. Colossians says you can possess all things. We are free to go help everybody else find their God-given identity and call out the fact that they are a masterpiece wherever we can find it. But we have to remember that for ourselves, first and foremost. We have to remember that for ourselves. And so you hold in your hand a weekly reminder of how, how deeply God believes, how resolutely God is committed to the fact that you are a masterpiece that needs to be redeemed, reminded every single week so that you can be turned loose to go join Jesus in his redemptive work. And so we have that reminder. Jesus took a piece of bread that night with his disciples. He broke it. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Jesus. Later in the meal, he took a cup. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of, of the covenant. And another gospel, he says, shed on behalf of many. Shed on behalf of many. Why? Because all those people that that blood is shed for are masterpieces looking to be redeemed. Let's remind ourselves of that. He says, whenever we do this, remember Jesus. Let's remember him today. Father God, would you uh, remind us of this truth which is so hard to internalize and commit ourselves to? Would you remind us? That first and foremost, would you start with our own insides that we are a masterpiece created for good works, which you, you designed in advance for us to do. You prepared In advance for us to do? Would we start there? The moment we're able to at least begin to taste that, would you turn our gaze outward? Allow us to see the world? But more importantly, as we talk about the family mountain, would you allow us to see our children? Would you allow us to see our parents? Would you allow us to see our spouse? Would you allow us to see our extended family? Would you allow us to see our church and our pastors and our spiritual mentors and those who we mentor? Would you allow us to see the youth and the people in our care groups? Would you allow us to see people through your eyes so that the truth that we speak into them is not about the people we wish they would be, but about people you've already made them to be? God, help us, help us, help us, help us. Give direction, direction, direction. We pray for your resurrection in so many places in our lives. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.